Hi, welcome to Verse Podcast, powered by Vime Capital. We will be hearing from leaders all across the long-term care sector who are shaping the future of our profession. Through these discussions, it's our hope that you will be even more well-versed as you tackle your day in seniors housing and healthcare. I'm your host, Scott Tittle, and this is Versed. I'd like to welcome to this episode of our podcast, Versed, Mark Trailer, president of Trailer Porter Healthcare in Alabama. Hey, Mark, welcome to our podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to talking to you. It's an honor to have you on today. We've been friends for a long time, and we could talk about all kinds of fun things from Alabama football to golf to all kinds of things. But we've got you on today to talk about a pretty important topic, which is value-based care. Since I have you on also, another timely topic, of course, is the Biden administration minimum staffing ratio proposed rule. We'd love to talk to you about that and your perspectives and your concerns about it, because that's certainly top of mind to our our audience as well. So tell us a little about your company, your operations, and your family history in long-term care. So my family got in the business back in the 50s. My great-grandparents started a home in a small town in rural Alabama. She actually started out of the back of her house uh, taking care of people and then realized there was a need and kind of grew that into what we would call a traditional nursing home now. I came back after college, wanted no part of the business, decided to be a stockbroker and got into the, the brokerage industry for 10 years. And then my father kind of came back to me and wanted me to come help with the family business. So I decided to go back, help a little bit, partnered with a gentleman named Howard Porter, great guy. And he's uh, turned out to be a really good business partner. We wound up buying a really depressed property in Opelika, Alabama. And uh, we're able to uh, turn that one around from, a, you know, about to be shut down to a five-star home. And then we kind of grew that and leveraged that into buying some other ones out of a bankruptcy and a receivership. And now we have five total homes. We have uh, two independent living complexes separately, some assisted living and own a pharmacy, uh, co-op with some other owners in a pharmacy and a medical supply business and a rehab business. And we also uh, have a nurse practitioner business and kind of just really diversified in our ancillary companies to try to make sure we had a good presence and good service. What a wonderful story. And I, I love talking to independent owners in the Aka and Cal family because so many of you have multi-generational experiences. You know, someone in your family was a leader in the sector before you, super mission driven, uh, wanted to wanted to improve healthcare, improve the lives of seniors and families. And so it's really inspirational. Your, your wife is also involved in the business too. Is that right? She is. She is. She's a, she's a nurse by trade. You live and breathe it, right? It's not a uh, job. It's a lifestyle. Our challenge is segmenting that and actually enjoying ourselves when we have time together versus talking shop. But at the same token, it's still fun because it is. There's no more rewarding business. Having been in the brokerage industry and other industries, you know, you don't get the opportunity to take care of somebody 24 hours a day, seven days a week and make a difference in people's lives that are so vulnerable. And it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling to be able to do that and do it, you know, uh, hopefully the right way. Well, thanks for sharing that. I mean, again, I want our listeners to kind of understand who we were talking to and, and your your passion for the sector and some of your listeners, again, are independent owners and, and share your story and, and know know your perspective. And, and that's really important too. So as I mentioned, one of our topics we've been covering this year with our guests is this big bucket of value-based care. And we've talked to some large operators in terms of Sniffs, some independent owners, Tom Coble out of Oklahoma, Steve Fogg out of Oregon, and wanted to give our listeners kind of perspectives of how every different size operator, both skilled, can participate somehow in this big bucket of value-based care. You all have a very interesting model there in Alabama. I'd like for our listeners to understand from a small independent owner in a Southern state, what led you to think about putting your iSNP program together and tell us a little about the model itself, the various different components and the different owners involved. We saw the 
the, the lay of the land kind of shifting. One of the things we do in Alabama is we are very actively involved politically. Being involved that way, you kind of hear the rumblings of uh, managed care is trying to come into the state and trying to take over the Medicaid program. And all of these dynamics were kind of working back in the late 2000s and uh, early uh, 2010s. We kind of got together and realized, you know, our mantra kind of was uh, our former chief executive officer of our association used the mantra, do we want the change to manage us or do we want to manage the change? And we decided, you know what, we want to manage the change. Spectrum's a, a very large owner, uh, another uh, smaller owner, and then a, a kind of a midsize owner in the state kind of got together and talked about it, discussed it, did a lot of legwork. I know a lot of people in the ISNIP world, especially in the independent owners, they kind of try to do little smaller ISNIPs. We decided to go ahead and take I guess uh, not a small bite of the apple. We just might swallow the whole apple. We were able to start a statewide network. The amount of time and money spent to do that was very uh, challenging. But at the end of the day, we were able to do that because we were able to partner with, I think we have 25 nursing home owners that joined in to create this ISNIP. And we also wound up getting a couple of, I think a home health agency that was statewide joined us in that as an owner and a, and a couple of physicians. It's turned out to be a, a unique thing. It's kind of turned out to be a very challenging thing to run. I don't know if that's still the case, but we're the third largest ISNIP in the United States. Now, granted, you know, the largest is 50,000 bodies and we're, you know, 4,000, but at the same token, it just goes to show you how hard it is and how, how challenging it is to execute it and build it and make it all kind of come together such a unique model you have there in terms of that statewide approach. What has been the benefit to you and your company in terms of some clinical outcomes, some operational experience, uh, maybe even some cost efficiencies? We have to ask ourselves, why are we doing this again? And what's the real reason? And, and so the very hard challenge as an owner of a skilled nursing facility coming into being on the board and a, starting up an insurance company, right, is you have to take these hats off. And you have to take this sniff operator hat off and put on an insurance hat for a little while and think of this strictly as a insurance company that is all the dynamics of an insurance company. And then how are we going to be a good customer to these skilled nursing facilities? Then, of course, as this thing evolves, you catch yourself putting back on your skilled nursing hat, which you have to, to kind of hold the insurance company accountable to say, look, don't turn into every other insurance company, slow pay, no pay, and all those dynamics. Let's actually do something beneficial for the customer, the patients. And uh, so that's a yin and a yang kind of going on there because you have to be financially solvent in the, as an insurance company, obviously, but you also have to provide a value add to the sniffs that you're dealing with. So it's become a big challenge. And we've really, uh, we've learned a lot. I mean, COVID, you know, was one of the major things that kind of taught us a lot about the true value of an iSNIP. And I think it really allowed a lot of people to see the true value of an iSNIP or of a SNF for that matter, because one of the unique things about iSNIPs is you have now nurse practitioners that are coming in your building and taking care of your patients. It's a really great model because a lot of skilled nursing facilities don't get the benefit of practitioners coming in their building on a consistent basis, right? You may get the once a month visit from your local doc, especially a rural area in smaller size buildings. Well, we're getting nurse practitioners walking through the halls on a weekly basis. And when COVID came, the value that the ISNIP added was we turned into what I would call a subacute, what you used to think of as a rural hospital, I guess. We were taking care of, obviously, the COVID patients, which had the same symptoms as the flu, pneumonia, you pick it. That's what we were doing. We we're hanging IVs. Our acuity level went up and the ability to show that value base 
that we provide in our setting was enhanced and kind of brought to the forefront during that time. So it was a unique time and it was a great time to be, and thank God we had that ISNIP, right? Already in place to be able to execute that game plan. You really credit your ISNIP to really helping Alabama operators get through COVID and now survive post COVID really, and kind of manage through this whole process, which I think is really exciting. It's timing's everything sometimes, right? I've read you certainly the, the value proposition of having those, is it SIMPRA advantage? Is that right? So, so the SIMPRA nurse practitioners kind of in your buildings on a regular basis, having their eyes and ears on your residents too, has really helped from a clinical standpoint and an operational standpoint. I've always said this, my mother's a nurse, my wife's a nurse, and I trust nurses to, with 500 employees and taking care of things. It also helps to alleviate the family's fears a little bit, right? Because now you have another set of eyes that's coming in and collaborating with you and is basically uh, validating what you're doing in a building um, as a separate entity to your customer base and letting them realize, hey, you know, these guys are doing a good job. It's been a uh, unique proposition to have it. The timing of it was, like you said, was wonderful. And uh, it's been a, it's been a good thing. It's been a challenge, but it's been a good thing. You touched on something really important too, in terms of the the mechanics of the backbone of the ISTIP release. You're creating an insurance company, right? And I, I actually have some legal background. When I first started practicing law, I was doing some insurance work here in Indiana. So I have some sense of certainly what, I remember what it takes to form an insurance company. I mean, it's, it's an expensive operation. Got to get approval from the state insurance commissioner. Got to show your leadership team, kind of eyeball to eyeball with the insurance commissioner. I mean, it's definitely a um, an intentional process, understandably so. I think what I want our listeners to really understand here today is that it's not just the big sniff operators that maybe can afford to go down that path. There are other options out there for independent owners, and especially including the one you've taken there in Alabama. So I think I'd like for our listeners to really kind of think about where they are in their own journey towards thinking about value-based care and just know that there are some other models out there that you can look at, especially in a way to kind of do maybe a statewide approach. Are you, are you aware, are there other states that have done something like this or they're thinking about it, you know? I think there's a couple that I've talked to that are trying to get it together. I don't think anybody's actually taken the bite of the apple that we have. I do think, you know, like you talked about, there's strength in numbers. And I would tell any of the listeners, you know, at the end of the day, don't be afraid to be bold, right? I mean, that's kind of what we did. We originally had that conversation of let's just try to do it here and kick the tires and get this off. But, you know, I mean, you're going to spend the same amount of time and the same amount of effort and not the same amount of money. So that's that's something to understand. But however, Strength in Numbers created it so that, well, three nursing home shop, like we were at the time when we started this thing, you know, it was a capital of about $400,000 that we had to come up with. It wasn't easy, but it wasn't daunting. It wasn't something that we couldn't do to try to generate economies of scale for the whole state. I imagine it's kind of an all boats rise experience too, right? I mean, you're you're really rooting for everybody else around the state to maybe make sure they're they're also providing high quality care, not only because they're inside the ISNIP as well, but because it helps the sector. A prior guest, our mutual friend Mark Parkinson, and he really pointed to value based care and, and ISNIPs as asking operators to think about ways they can control their own destiny in the future, and that this is an option out there for you to think about. There are a lot of headwinds in this sector. There are a lot of challenges, and a lot of folks who want to come in and and think they're able to do something a little bit better than you're able to do on the front lines, and so. I think you're, there's probably a lot of sense of control also through the ISNIP and making sure you're you're managing the healthcare for your residents in an even better way. Is that right? The challenge is what you realize is when you set up this ISNIP, it really boils down to your model of care and how you're actually impacting that resident in room 101A, right? How we're actually taking care of them the best way we can. And that collaborative mindset and having the ability to not only sit in my skilled nursing facility and have that mindset of how we're going to take care of that patient, to sitting in the boardroom with a clinician who's over your whole entire ISNIP to make sure those two are coexisting with the same mindsets and the same goals. That's the key. And that's the beauty of it that I don't get when 
and it's nothing against United. It's nothing against these others. I'm not going to get that with them. They're, they have their agenda and we have our agenda. And those two usually are sitting here, you know, not intersecting it right way. And this, that's what creates the beauty of provider on ice. For those, uh, especially independent owners out there around the country, that are interested in thinking about this. I know Mark's available. The folks at ACA and Cal have got a whole team dedicated to helping operators thinking about how to implement value-based care models inside their operations or work collectively through networks. So there are a lot of folks out there to help you think about what could be possible. So I really encourage you to contact us or contact Mark and we can help get you in the right direction. Mark, I'd like to shift topics actually to a pretty concerning topic, which is the Biden administration proposed skilled nursing facility minimum staffing ratio rule that the, the open comment period just recently closed a couple of weeks ago, a world record 46,000 or so unique individual comments went in. And that's a big thanks to you and the leadership team at ACA and Cal for really making sure that voices were heard uh, at CMS. There's some numbers were run by um, ACA and Cal on a building by building basis. So if this rule were to go in place as is, do you have a sense of what that could cost you kind of on a per building basis per year to, to comply with it? That Again, that's assuming that the labor capital was there to hire. Right now with the increase in RN pay and the, you know, in order to do it, you would have to obviously hire in our situation. And I think this is not uncommon from the majority of us. You would take your one or two off that you're having to pay to go in a hundred bed building to maybe four or five of those RNs at, you know, $60 an hour when we're not usually paying $30, $35 an hour in our state. And the problem with it is, is, is prior to the COVID pandemic, we tried to have lowest ratios, I guess we would say, as we could. But the challenge with this particular model that they've come up with, it takes, you know, take consideration LPNs. There is no landing spot for LPNs. There's no realistic way to achieve the end game that the administration is wanting us to achieve. Yeah. And we've heard again, Mark Parkinson talk about, you know, every 1% of census that is under pre-COVID levels is about a billion dollars of less money into the sector itself. And now you're talking about layer on a minimum staffing ratio that's going to cost, you know, even by the administration's low numbers, $4 billion additional a year. I think the HCA's numbers are closer to six, six and a half or 7 billion. So you're layering on $10 billion plus of added cost or lost revenue each year. And I think that's the, the emphasis point from the advocates out there to the administration is, you know, the sector's not against minimum staffing ratios. It has to be reasonable and, and realistic and also appropriately paid for. We've all got to be in to help improve quality and everyone wants to, everyone's quality improve. But this unfunded mandate that is just impossible to achieve, it's just not the right time and, and, and an unfounded, unrealistic uh, proposal. Kind of scary that, uh, you know, that kind of proposal can be actually put forth in light of all of the headwinds that our industry is facing. It's almost insensitive to what's going on and it's out of touch. And it's just, it, it creates a uh, really big challenge of, you know, what, what else are we deciding up there? But it's something that hopefully cooler heads will prevail, whether it's uh, through Congress or whether it's uh, through the court system, cooler heads will prevail and we'll, uh, we'll get some relief from this. Uh, I agree with you. I'm, I have no fear of a staffing mandate. I don't really doesn't scare me. I just need to know how I'm going to pay for it. Thanks to the hard work of, you know, all the trade associations and operators themselves. Um, a lot of voices are being heard both formally through the CMS process. There are a lot of op-eds written around the country. There are a lot of uh, letters from members of Congress going to the White House. We've got some great new champions on Capitol Hill. And so uh, hopefully what this will result in is an elevation of an understanding of really the challenges and the front lines going on in, in skilled nursing facilities right now and what's needed to provide high quality care, especially as this baby boomer demographic is coming. But the work's not done, right? We still we still need to advocate really hard to make sure that, that voices are being heard at the White House and the administration. You and I both have been participating in some government relations calls recently where there have been some 
efforts on Capitol Hill, some legislation reduced, some key amendments. And so hopefully with the good work being done over the next year, we can help make sure we sort of soften this blow and make it much more realistic, right? We've got just a few minutes left. I know you've got some leadership position there at the Alabama Nursing Home Association. Tell our listeners a little bit about some things you're looking forward to next year. Are there some uh, some opportunities or some challenges or some goals for the association there in your state? You know, there's always challenges and there's always opportunities, right? And we're really focusing on making sure that we do adjust our Medicaid rates and increase our ceilings relative to the, the higher cost of care, higher cost of paying for nurses. We've been really focused on that. And we've made a lot of progress in that. We've had a lot of successes this past year, positioning ourselves for that. So we're in a fortunate position now that, that we think we've done some pretty good legwork, uh, state specific in Alabama that can help us to supplement paying for a, a mandate in some way, but it's still, uh, it's still work to do. We, one of the things we're also working on is we're trying to really help this, our particular state in our rehab population for SNFs to be able to provide that value base that we're talking about to geriatric patients that don't need to necessarily go into higher cost setting or an inpatient rehab facility and come into a uh, skilled nursing facility. So we're trying to make sure that the playing field is fair. We're working with our uh, state health planning agency to try to make sure that verbiage on the legislation that, that and how that state plan looks relative to skilled nursing facilities, managing rehab patients is going. So, and that's something that We've been spending a lot of time on here recently, and I can't get into all the details because we're still in negotiations, but that's something that uh, we're trying to help out to make sure that, again, we are creating value not only for our state, but that also helps out with Medicare recipients doing it in a lower cost setting. Well, thanks for sharing some thoughts about what's going on there in Alabama. I know you've got a tremendously effective uh, state exec there and our mutual friend, Brandon Farmer. And I know he's going to do a great job there in the state house there in 2024. A couple of fun, quick questions. Uh, we just had a really amazing Iron Bowl over the weekend. You're a big Alabama fan. Boy, what an incredible ending. Certainly you guys won with that that incredible play there at the end of the bomb pass to the to the back corner. And and I was I was impressed with Nick Saban, of course. He said that you, know, you guys practice that play, but he also said, hey, a little luck isn't a bad thing either. And it sort of made me think about leadership. You know, it's like, you know, Nick Saban has got to be one of the most prepared leaders in any industry, just with the amount of success he's had. And even he's acknowledging that, hey, you know, some luck every once in a while is a good thing too. What do you think? Is that the same perspective you have in leading your, your team? And along the way, a little bit of luck is a good thing too. I've said that a thousand times. You just, you, you constantly prepare to take advantage of luck when it does occur, right? And, and you constantly prepare. You never quit until you quit, right? So you don't, you don't lose anything by continuing to try. And that's the one thing that I think Nick Saban, we all from a business perspective, I try to relay, we have to always consist, consistently be prepared. And if I'm a young entrepreneur trying to get into the nursing home industry or whether I'm a, a guy making widgets, constantly prepare as if you're a backup. Because I think sometimes we all get caught in life where we have a little bit of success and we want to say, look how good we are and here we go. And then something hits you out of left field that you're not prepared for and challenges arise and you're unlucky and you're not in a position to either A, adjust to that bad situation or B, capitalize on that and fight through it so that when luck does come, you're prepared for it. I think that's a huge thing. And I think there is no substitute preparation so that when your time finally does come as that backup mentality that you know that you can execute when the timing is right. To me, that's uh, 
that's probably one of the most successful things. I have learned more from my failures than I ever will think about learning from my successes. Those failures have allowed me to adjust my sales when the wind adjusts the sales and be able to position myself for whatever opportunity may come down the road. Can't thank you enough for all the work you do on the front lines there to improve you know, healthcare and and the lives of our seniors and families. Hey, before we go, just a question I asked of all of our guests. Is there a book on your nightstand right now you'd recommend or something you've inspired you along your, your journey? I'm like the person that watches the TV show for about 20 minutes and flips the channel. So I have several books on my nightstand. So, yeah. um, but two that I will tell you that I'm kind of focused on right now. And I always try to have one for kind of self-development. And then I always have one for just enjoyment. Um, I'm reading Lexington, which is about a famous racehorse back in the Civil War days by Kim uh, Wick Wickens, I believe it is. And uh, that's really enjoyable. And it's, it's been fun to kind of read about that and understand horse racing kind of in the infancy stage and how important that was to the nation and how big of a sport it was back then. And just that's been fun. Then the second one that I'm building self-fulfillment uh, on uh, helping my business is Strategy by Lawrence Friedman. And I know that's a staple for a lot of people, but it's my first opportunity to read it. And I, I love the quote right when you open it up, it says, you know, everybody has a game plan until you get punched in the mouth. Mike Tyson said mm -hmm. that. And that is absolutely true. Everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And that kind of goes back to your preparation statement. I think that's why it's so important to, to study strategy and figure out because there's a lot of ways we can all get to the end game that we're trying to achieve. And your way may not be the same as my way, but the key is to commit and believe in a way and adjust your sales as you find out this may, maybe we need to turn here, maybe we need to turn there and have the open mind to be able to do that. And this strategy thing is just something that I've really enjoyed reading. Thanks again. Really appreciate you being on today. It means a lot to me. For our listeners, thanks for tuning in. This is Versed.